Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I wish I could put a, uh, a pause on this weather that we're in right now. It's really, really incredible. If you guys can, if you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, please, chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five. Let me open up there myself. So we started to see this in worship. I, seasons is a word that's used a lot in the Christian Christian culture. Uh, I'm not opposed to it. Um, I think it's right. It, it's describing something that God begins to put His finger on. And uh, sometimes it can be used a lot. <laughs> but, but really, um, I say that because I do feel like there's a, a season where it's more than just one day, even a week. Something begins to be an extended period of time where God's highlighting. And I, I feel strongly that um, we, we are in a sort of season with the Lord where he is, uh, he's really highlighting his jealous desire for all of us. And we began to even share some of this last week of um, living a life that's fully pleasing unto the Lord. Yes, we're, he's pleasing us because we're in Christ, who he's eternally pleased with. But as we said, Hebrews 11 speaks of a life of faith that brings pleasure to God. And so we want to live a life of faith that's pleasing God, not just positionally, but practicing that. And I, I feel a, just a jealous desire of God for me. I feel I'm thankful. I feel God touching areas of my life. I want you to know things I'm about to share today, I'm sharing as one in process. So just know that we're in this journey together, and there's things that God's calling me deeper into. Um, the Lord is altogether lovely, and so that means there's no facet of God that we cannot dive into that we don't come out on the other side if we really open up our hearts and say, that's lovely. Thank goodness he's like that, and what we need to be careful of is that there's certain facets of God that we want to turn off to. Uh, for whatever reason, we have a distorted view. We don't understand it, but really uh, what happens is we cut ourselves off to God, and if we love someone, we, we want to know all about them. You know, if we say we love God, we want to know every part about him. And when we really study uh, who God is, we'll find out that every part of him is lovely. So all that to say, I feel we're in a similar vein from last week. Very different uh, in terms of the content of what we're talking about. But I feel just this life of obedience, this life that wants to uh, really be sold out, fully surrendered to God. I felt, and I, I wonder, I'm sure many did, that God's presence, his presence is his amen for me. <laughs> Meaning when you sense the Lord like really move in, it's him like putting his exclamation point. And I felt when Johnny and the team was singing about hands raised, life fully surrendered, one of, some, some of those lyrics, I really sensed God come in. And I just think it's God putting his finger on this is what he's calling us, uh, speaking into us right now in this time. This life that's fully surrendered, that extends beyond just the Sunday morning, which I know you guys know. So there's responses to altar today, but really what God's looking for is a lifestyle response. I think a lot can happen at an altar call. I think a lot can happen in the moment when you sense God doing something. But the idea is we also have to be careful where we don't think the work has stopped there. But he's really speaking to a lifestyle. And, uh, and I pray that, that would just, we just be touched again for obedience and to love him. So here we are in 2 Corinthians. Um, actually, it's really 6. I'm sorry. I'm going to highlight a little bit of 5. So it, it's right there. 2 Corinthians 6. Um, I was planning on actually speaking into some more vision for us as a house of prayer. But God's just, um, we're just moving with the Lord. <laughs> uh, where, where the cloud goes, that's where we want to follow. So, um, yeah, in some ways we'll, uh, 
will really touch. I felt um, a lot of people last week were really stirred, too, by some of the things God was doing. So it's, it's, um, this has been a really good, healthy process. So 2 Corinthians 6, we're going we're gonna to journey through essentially this chapter into verse 1 of chapter 7. We're not going to read it in its entirety. We're going to highlight some things, uh, fill in the gaps. Um, but especially this opening verse of chapter 6, and then later on in chapter 6, towards the end, I think is where Paul fleshes this out, okay? So let me just, let me give us some context of what we're about to read, then we're going to jump in and grow in the Lord together. Amen? You guys with me? If you're not, you should open your Bible so you can see this. It's very important, especially because we're going through a lot. So if you've got a phone, you can open up 2 Corinthians 6. But Paul is uh, going to make a statement in the opening verse of, of chapter 6 that you can't appreciate without understanding how chapter 5 closes. Just as a side note, and we say this often, I know there's many experienced Bible readers in here, and you know this, but I also know we often have new people, and not just new people, but new people in the faith. And, uh, and these chapter breaks are important for us to be organized in the scriptures. They help us to identify and come to the same place together, but they were not a part of the originally inspired scriptures. And the reason why that's important is we can often stop at a chapter break, but the actual thought of the author has not stopped. And you can run into some issues there. And so as we're reading the beginning of chapter 6 is what we're calling it, but really there's a flow of thought that we're coming into that I want us to understand. And that's this, is that in the end of chapter 5, Paul, beginning in like verse 16, is beginning to expound on the grace of God that has literally been richly bestowed and lavished on us who are in Christ. And Paul's just going through a catalog of blessings that we've been given, starting with the fact that we're new creations, Right? This is an amazing statement that Paul says we're, we're, not just, we're not just following a new list of do's and don'ts, but we have literally been radically, pervasive, pervasively like recreated from the inside out. God has made us new to such a degree that our, our, our desires, our habits, our, our, our pursuits, our values, everything is changing. The old is passing away old habits, destructive lifestyles, like this is what grace has brought us into, that we can have a clean break from the old way of living into a new life. And then Paul goes on to say that we've been reconciled. All this is from God. He says we've been reconciled. Uh, We who were once far off, we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Colossians deepens it. It says that when we were far off, we were, we were hostile in our minds, enemies of God, doing evil deeds. But then the blood of Jesus was shed, came after us when we weren't looking for God, and made us who were enemies of God, it says, now we're holy, blameless, and above reproach. Not, not holy, I, this always gets me, we're not just holy before one another. We're holy before the Holy One, it says. He presents us before himself as set apart and, and as pure because of the blood of Jesus. Then it says you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So not only have you been reconciled, now God says, I'm making my appeal through you. I'm bringing other people into the kingdom through your voice now. And all of it, Paul sums up by saying that we have become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Why do I say all that? Not because I even really want to talk about that, but it's because in chapter 6, Paul turns his attention to a different facet of which now he says, I want you to see how you should live in light of the glorious realities that have been bestowed on your life, in light of all of the grace that has just been released over our lives, Paul says there is a right response from the church. Let's read verse 1. He says, working together with him. You guys see that? I believe it's actually Paul emphasizing his co-laboring with the Lord himself because he just got done speaking about what God had been doing in our lives. So working together with him then, We appeal to you. 
we plead with you not to receive, here it is, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So, Lord, uh, so Paul, after writing about all of these glorious realities, here's Paul's statement. Paul says, guys, in light of what the Lord has done, do not treat it lightly. Do not take it as common. The fact that you and I stand in a place of righteousness before the holy God, Paul is saying, I plead with you. Like we need to enter and feel Paul's burden. I plead, I urge you that that which you have received would not be in vain. That you would not treat this common what God has done. That your life would have an appropriate response to all that God has done and has made possible in your life. This is the call that I feel more than ever God's touching my heart with. This call to give more, to be set apart. Because on the other side, actually, as we experience more and more greater measure, the promises God has given to us. So what does Paul exactly mean when he says, I pray, I urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, some may say, and some may say, well, what Paul's addressing is a specific group within the Corinthian church. He's addressing unbelievers. And, and Paul is, is telling unbelievers, I, I pray that you would stop resisting the gospel. You'd stop resisting grace. And I 100% believe there's application in this text for people on all different parts of the spectrum of their faith, those who are deeply in the Lord, those who don't know him at all. So unbelievers are in this. But I do firmly believe Paul is not addressing unbelievers. Why? Because Paul does not say, I pray that you would stop rejecting the grace of God. He doesn't say, I pray that you would stop, stop resisting the gospel of God. He says, I pray that that which you have received would now not be in vain. He's saying there's something genuine you've received. You've received the grace of God. You've been made a new creation. You've been declared the righteousness of God. You're standing before God as holy. And Paul says, hear my heart. I pray all that has been accomplished by the blood of Jesus would not be unto nothing in your life. He's saying you actually genuinely have received something. It's yours. And he's inviting us not to treat it or uh, take it in vain, that you would not have received the grace of God in vain. The word vain, that word is kinos. It means this, to empty. It means without content, purpose, or result. The grace of God in vain means it's without purpose, it's without content, it's without result. You know that grace has an intended desire in your life. God wants grace to lead us somewhere. Therefore, to receive God's grace in vain is not to reject it outrightly, but to receive it without profit. To receive it without allowing its intended desire to be brought to pass in your life. Meaning it's, it's, our, it's genuine. We're his, we're a son, we're a daughter. Grace has been extended. And Paul is saying, but it's possible as a blood-bought, spirit-filled believer to not let grace take you where it wants to take you. Which primarily is conformed to the image of Jesus. A life that looks like the Son of God walking on the earth. That people would know who Jesus is by looking at us. It's, the grace is accepted here, but it didn't attain its goal. That's, listen, I just feel the Lord, these are aspects of say, God, we need to enter into this. We need to enter into this, God. Let us feel this, Lord, that you have a goal. Grace wants to do something in our life. Notice this. I really believe Paul is not even addressing uh, the loss of salvation per se. What Paul's addressing is the loss of potential blessing. Guys, in the Lord, because of what Jesus has done, he's saying there is so much potential for intimacy. Yeah. 
encounters, influence, impact, transformation, joy, growth. He's saying, do you know what grace has done the new covenant? You're the habitation of God now. So much is within reach, and he's saying, but I fear that you would waste by not stepping and enjoying all that was, all that was potentially there because of being in Christ. And so the Corinthians genuinely received the gospel, but they had failed to progress in their Christian growth, and thus they minimized their impact and influence. And by doing so, Paul says, you run the risk of wasting grace, is what he's talking about. Wasting grace. Like, this is what God, there are so many things can come in our life that dull and rob us of, there was such potential for, the veil is torn. <laughs> like, when we start thinking about grace and what, you know, our lives as priests, we're carriers of the glory of God. We're, we're agents of releasing God's kingdom, all that God wants to do. So much is possible, and Paul says, but it's also possible. It's also possible that through a lifestyle of choices of not even outright sinful, but just distractions been there, that the Lord, Paul would say, be careful or you have received grace in vain. Yes? L listen, I believe today, and this is a bit of a general, a general brush, but I believe today that there is, there is a grace crisis message. I really believe that. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. Um, I talk about this a lot, though, when I ever bring this up. The issue is not with grace. <laughs> You, I don't want you to think the message is we need to stop grace and move out of grace. <laughs> That's the complete opposite. Even Jesus as a man modeled that he grew in the grace of God, it says in Luke. We, we're, not asked, we're not called to move out of grace. The issue is not with grace, but what we're emphasizing in grace, which is we've cut it in half. You've heard me share it, but it's radical forgiveness, radical empowerment. The grace crisis message is that we've removed the empowerment aspect of grace. And what we have now, which is still true, is radical forgiveness but we're not bringing the empowerment aspect. And so grace, the grace message has been reduced to do whatever you want to do. One, you won't even be able to change to begin with. And it's okay because you're forgiven and you'll be with him forever. That is not the grace message. Actually, that's not even really good news. To remain in the same old cycles of sin and just say, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm under grace. Grace says you can be transformed. You can be changed. Your desires can change. Your life can change. He can take a drug addict and turn him into a pastor. That's what grace does. It says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's not speaking about grace as just covering up sin. That's grace conquering sin. When it says grace abounds, it doesn't mean it's just going to keep putting a Band-Aid on saying it's okay, it's okay. You are radically forgiven. I don't want to diminish that at all. Like let that encourage your heart. But you're also radically empowered. <laughs> And when it says sin abounds, but grace abounds all the more, it's saying there's an answer to conquer sin in your life. There's an answer to, to break chains in your mind. We don't have to be victims anymore to the same old things. We can be set free. Today is the day to break off compromise. If there's sin in your life that you know God has said, I'm telling you, grace is available to come out this morning. I really feel that. There, there is something to come out and say, I'm... I'm I'm severing everything this morning, and I'm moving forward with the Lord. So we need, a, we need a restoration of the power of grace. Grace is the palpable presence of God. Do you know, um, to give you an example of how grace is really about empowerment, although it's forgiveness, it's really empowerment, the spiritual gifts, the word for spiritual gifts, I know a lot of you know this, but some don't. The Greek word is charismata. The root word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. That's the word for grace. 
some actually will translate spiritual gifts as grace gifts or grace lits. Literally, the, the gifts of God are, is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to flow and function as God's called us. Grace is about empowerment. <laughs> that's the full message. And what's happened is, is there's a presentation of a message that's proclaiming liberty. It's saying this is freedom, and it's destroying lives. Yes. It's actually destroying lives. Because if we see what the Bible says about sin, the Bible never says let sin linger. It never says, hey, just kind of mess around with it. It says if there's sin, cut it out gouge it out, crucify the flesh, the flesh put, to de- put to death the misdeeds of the body, crucify, death, cut off, gouge. The, bo- the closer you get to sin, the Bible says, do not let it linger. That's why Jesus died, because sin destroys. The ultimate end of sin is death, and Jesus came to remove that and set us free. And when we preach a message that only says the grace is just forgiveness, we're actually emboldening people in the compromise. We're actually reassuring them when they're misaligned with the will of God. I've been under that, like just not doing what God has said. And although I'm his and I'm forgiven as his child, I'm just staying there thinking, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. But here's what Paul is saying and what you're going to see at the end of this chapter is Paul is saying when you do that, there's so much more that God wants to do in our lives. So much more. It does violence. When we do this, this does violence to to the testimony of the New Testament scriptures. Jude 4 literally says, that there were some who snuck into the church. I don't think that means that they, uh, as people were entering the doors, they like ran in between and no one saw them. It's actually speaking of their conduct. They snuck in and that they had a presentation of being a part of the church. They, pre- they presented as if they were under the lordship of Christ, but it says they actually snuck in. And here's what they were doing, exact words. They perverted the grace of God by saying that grace was a means for immorality. That grace is a license to just keep going, going, going. They said, and, and Paul and, and them are writing saying, no, 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 this is not the grace of God. Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 10 says, be careful not to insult the spirit of grace and trample on the blood of Jesus. You've been given the spirit of God. Don't insult grace. Let grace do its full work. So the answer or the call is not to stop grace, but let grace go all the way through in your life. Let what Jesus bought with his blood and the spirit of God, let it have its way. 2 Peter 3.18 says that we, you know how we grow? In the grace of God and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in grace. Grace is never a means to stay stagnant or stuck. It's the very catalyst for our transformation. So if we claim to be under grace, then let us grow in all that has now been made possible. I want to show you one other verse. Oh, praise God. Oh, can you come to um, Titus 2.11 and 12, please? You guys can look up here. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to have to just bounce back and forth a little bit. Can you guys see this? Hopefully I don't squeak. I'll come over here. Listen, this is what Titus says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, this doesn't mean universalism, that all promise salvation, but I do believe it's saying salvation has been brought within the reach of every single human now. But now those who respond specifically to this grace that has appeared, look what it says in the next verse. Here's what grace really does. It's training us to do what? What what is the intended goal of grace in our life? To just keep us circling the same mountains? No, no. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So Paul is saying if we don't let grace take us here, it would be in vain. Like the world is looking to see, is, can someone really be set free from the lust of the flesh? Can someone really be delivered 
And the answer is yes. Let, let our testimony of what grace can do come out. If you can go back to verse 11 one more time. I want you to notice this. I just want us to treasure the grace of God for a moment. Notice what it says. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's actually speaking of Jesus there, but it's, it's a very strange wording, is it not? That grace has appeared. What does that mean exactly? I want you to just, I want you to just ponder this for a moment. This is so beautiful. It does not say grace began here, but only that grace has appeared. Can you guys go to 2 Timothy? This, look, look at this. We're on the start of grace appearing. Look what it says. This is speaking about the power of the gospel. This is so, so important. God, through the power of the gospel, it says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So where's grace taking us? To a holy calling. But remember, when Christ appeared, grace appeared. Now look what this says here. Purpose and grace, which he gave us. What did he give us? Grace. When did he give it to us? In Christ Jesus, before the ages began. <laughs> this is so mind-blowing, that we would treasure the eternal treasure of grace. For what Paul is saying is that grace has always existed, but that which was eternally existent in the Godhead, for how long, we don't know, but grace and his goodness and his loving kindness was always there. That which always existed, there was a moment in history when it broke in and manifested and touched our lives. That which has always been there, he's saying, when Christ appeared, the eternal treasure of grace also appeared and reached out to us who were in the, the shackles of death and saved us. And Paul says, do not let this treasure of grace be in vain. Don't let it be unto nothing in your life. I don't know about you, but when you have a beautiful gift to someone, sometimes you wait. <laughs> There's an excitement to that. I just picture grace was like the answer to our brokenness. And in God's goodness, like he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. And finally, he creates the cosmos, and then he knows all that's going to happen. And finally, he sends the son. And in the sending of his son, he says, here's my precious gift. I give you grace to bring you back to myself, to live for me. Oh, that we would not squander it. <laughs> Amen? So that we would not receive grace in vain. So counter to what maybe some of the messages are today, it's possible to have received it in vain. Paul's not, I don't think, Paul's even concerned about losing the power of grace to save you in his life. But what's concerning me is that it's possible to have it on your life, but not let it lead you to all that was possible. Now, what exactly is happening at this Corinthian church? That's where we're going. So track with me. I believe verse 14 to verse 1 of chapter 7 gives us the insight into exactly, I think, or at least one way, that this church was receiving the grace of God in vain. But before we get there, let's just summarize what's happening here. Look at verse 3. Paul stops for a moment before he really brings clarity to this issue, and he starts to, there's some personal addresses here. He references his own life and ministry. Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 6. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no, one, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So what Paul's going to do right now is after he's speaking of letting grace take and, and bring it into the fullness, he then says, now look at my life. I love, Paul has set so many amazing examples. Paul is not relating to them through their sin. Like he's not trying to say, hey, you guys struggle with this. I get it. I struggle with this too. There's a, pl there's a fine line between like testimony and then actually boasting in sin as a way of thinking this is more relatable. They're going to want Christ more after this. The the church, how many of you have heard the church is a hospital for the sick? 
It's true. It is a hospital for the sick, but who in the natural would ever keep going to a hospital that when the sick come in, the sick just remain? The sick just stay. The sick just keep it. We'd say, this is not a good hospital, or they're not listening to, the, to what's been given to them, right? Likewise, we need to be careful that we're always boasting in just our sickness, saying, you should come here because we're sick too. <laughs> we were sick. We're not, trying to, we're not trying to present a false image. We're real about struggles. No one's perfect. But what we want to present is we were that, but look what Christ is doing in our life now. He's really, really changing us. It's really real. He's setting us free. And so Paul, he's not relating them. He's calling them higher. He's like, look how grace has been working in my life. Not in a boasting of himself, but in a boasting of the power of God. And what I love is he said, we've set no obstacle in your way that you could find fault with our ministry. So what he's really saying is be careful. It's a, it's a, it's a tough truth, but it's a real truth. That our conduct can have real repercussions for those who are hearing us preach the gospel to them. Paul says, I made sure that there was nothing in my life that would become a stumbling block for you receiving the gospel. In other words, he says, what he's saying is, if you reject the gospel that I give to you, let it be because of the content of which I preach and not because of the character by which I live by. I've set no stumbling block. Here I am, right? Now Paul begins to labor. I mean, we're not even going to read it. All the way to verse 10, Paul lays out everything he's endured for the church at Corinth shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments. He lost his reputation. They say he's an imposter. I mean, you talk about he's endured all of this. And then in verse 11, we're almost at this key point in verse 14. Let's look at verse 11. This is really important as well. You guys follow me? Verse 11 to 13, you hear the pastoral burden of Paul. If you ever have conflict with someone, particularly in the church, these few verses you should meditate on. They have incredible insight into how we should handle that we're not even getting into. Verse 11 to 13, 2 Corinthians 6. He's putting them up there. He's ahead. I didn't even ask for that. So look what Paul says after pointing to his own life and all that he's endured. He said this. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Notice the personal address here. Paul's not coming with like heavy-handed, his ecclesiastical power. He's like, man, he's coming saying Corinthians. He actually will call them children in a moment. Not because they're childish, but, but because of his tender devotion towards them. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Here's what he's saying. Basically what it means is our mouth was wide open because our heart is wide open to you. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul is saying, we did not speak secretly. We didn't try to be manipulative. We weren't trying to be divisive. Listen, I pray that when you hear my words, Corinthians, you hear my heart that you would know that our heart's been open and transparent. We're for you. We want to see the best for you. And then look what it says, verse 12. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Here's what he's saying. By, when he says you're not restricted by us, Paul is, Paul is saying you have our fullest devotion possible. Well, here's what he's saying. We love you. Why? Because the Corinthians were being tempted to doubt Paul loved them now. Now, just think about this. What did Paul just say for nine verses that we didn't even read? I was shipwrecked. I was beaten. I was in prison. My name was dragged through the mud, all so that I could bring the gospel to you and see you guys walk in the fullness of God. And now that I share truth in your life, you ask if I love you? <laughs> you question if I love you? Paul says our heart's been open to you. Receive. Guys, this is like, what would it look like for a body that really grasped this message right here? Thank God. If you have people in your life that love you enough not to... Not to destroy you, but to see you be redirected in your life and it goes off the path. Praise them for that. Like, praise God for that. 
the, the shepherds, when sheep were going out of, out of direction, shepherds, one of the things they did is they took rocks and they threw rocks. And actually, it would scare the sheep to redirect and go back. But I remember a Pastor Don Wilkerson was once doing a devotion, and he said there's a major difference between throwing a rock to redirect and throwing a rock to hurt the sheep. <laughs> so we don't throw a rock at someone to hit them and hurt them, but in order to redirect their lives. So Paul then says in verse 13, in return, I speak as to children, right? He's like, you're my children. Widen your hearts also. So he said, our hearts wide open. We love you. We're for you. Why are you questioning we love you? Because we want to see you grow in what grace has made possible in your life. Don't hate us for that. <laughs> and here we come to the, the key part for us. Verse 14. If they're putting it up there, we're in verse 14. Now here's where I believe Paul really gives us some insight into how grace was being taken, received in vain. And um, fair warning, I'll speak a little bit as we go through, but I really want to get us to verse 1 of chapter 7 because that's where the full picture comes, um, comes into view, where you really see this beautiful idea of what Paul's saying and what grace has made us and what we, why we don't want to squander that, okay? So let's look at verse 14. Here's the issue. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I just stop for a moment. What's probably happening here is that, and we know this from the immediate context, but we also know it from the first letter to Corinthians, chapter 6 and 8. Paul, on several occasions, addressed the church at Corinth going back into some of their old temple cult worship. They would eat the food that was offered to idols. They had things going on like this. So what's probably happening is that Paul is, once again, he's addressing those who have genuinely received grace but are now going back to similar ways that they were just brought out of. Specifically, what many believe Paul is really highlighting here is that part of the temple cult worship of these days, it was pretty dark, is there was temple prostitutes, and there would be a lot of sexual immorality as an act of worship to that god or goddess. And so you probably have people gauging in sexual immorality here, and Paul is going to call them out of this because he says, grace has been given and has made you something. Do not squander what God has made you. There's so much more for you, yes? So when he says unbelievers, he's probably speaking about these unconverted Gentiles that are engaging in these services in the temple. Now, there's something specific, but there's a general application I do believe applies for all of us. I don't think Paul is telling us by any means to disengage with the world. Not at all. We're called the salt and light of the earth. We're called to go in, permeate, and transform the world. But I do believe what Paul is telling us is that we should examine every relationship, and every endeavor that we partake in and ask ourselves, does this thing or does this person or does this act, is it weakening my will for holiness? Is it robbing me and dulling me of my affections for the Lord? This is what I feel God speaking to me. I told him right now, Andrew, I want you to examine every endeavor, every, every hobby, everything you do in my life, and, and I want you to ask, is this weakening your will for holiness? Is it robbing you of your affections? And if it is, what Paul's going to say is, cut it out. <laughs> Not like, stop, he's going to say like, cut it, literally cut it, break it off. So here's what he does is he gives these five, um, these five questions, if you will. They're rhetorical questions of which the answer is none whatsoever. So verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Here's why we shouldn't. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? He's declaring that they're righteous. What partnership do they have with that? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial, which is a symbolic term for Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What's the answer over and over? None whatsoever. He's showing, guys, stay with me. He's showing what grace has done in their life. That grace has made them something. He then says, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
And then he hits this climax, the temple. He says, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He then says, for we are the temple of the living God. (laughs) I don't want to be guilty of unwarranted exaggeration, but I'd be hard-pressed to find another statement that's more theologically important and spiritually encouraging than you and I are the temple of the living God. Paul says we're not just another institution. You and I are not just another social service meeting the felt needs of our neighbors. There's an aspect where we do that. But he says you are the habitation of the creator of everything. The place, the, de- the dwelling place of the, the temple of God is the place of habitation. It's the place of glory. Like the Shekinah glory rests here. It's the place of encounter. It's the place of intimacy. It's the place of light and revelation to a dark world. It's the place of his voice that goes out to a world that is deaf and does not hear the truth. You know, and what he's saying is, you are that temple. You are the place of light and revelation to a world. You're the place where God's voice goes out. You're the place of intimacy and encounter. You're the place of habitation. And he's saying, this is who you are. Do not receive that in vain by being in partnership with something that would weaken what God has made you. So he's saying, look at everything and crush it. Cut, cut it out, like, take everything that is of a defilement of the flesh and remove it from your life. Now is the time because of the gift that you've been given to fully press into God. For we are the temple of the living God, yes? So here's what Paul does. It's coming into this key verse, just stay with me. He says, for as we are the temple of the living God, as God said, and here's what he does. He quotes a bunch of Old Testament texts that are all regarding promises of a future end-time temple, okay? But here's what Paul's going to say. All of those promises that everyone's been waiting for, it's not about a physical structure. He says, here's what it is. All of those promises are about a, about a temple that was coming, which is the church. So all of these promises, he says, you have received them. Listen, he says, I will walk, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Because you're the temple of God, profound opportunity for intimacy with God greater encounters with Holy Spirit now because you're the dwelling place you're the meeting place of God he says and I will be their God and they shall be my people it's a promise of his lordship over your life God taking personal ownership to provide for you and lead you verse 17 therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord and touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you to be his temple is a promise of acceptance and then verse 18 and I will be a father to you And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's the promise of sonship. Now, here's where it all comes, and it ties a bow on. Remember, he says, I pray that you would not receive grace in vain. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, since then we have these promises. What promises? Promises of intimacy. Promises of sonship. Promises of of his acceptance. Promises of his lordship. Promise that you're the house of God now. Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice he does not say cleanse yourself to receive these promises. He says, because you have them, throw off everything, not to receive them, for Christ can only do that for you, but so that you would have maximum enjoyment of what is now possible by grace and so that your life would bring a maximal display of what is possible in grace. That everything we don't hinder, that we don't take off, he's saying it's robbing you of what is within your reach now because of grace. 
This is, this is so, he says, guys, a generation that understands the grace of God message doesn't just circle the same places. It, it, it begins to wage war on every area of their life that is striking intimacy with God, striking communion with God, binding them. They're saying, I don't want anymore. That's what Paul is saying. In light of who God has made you and the grace that's been provided, Paul is calling us to make a full-on assault in area of our, any area of our life that would rob us of what God has brought within our reach. Let us, he says. Notice, it's grace, but there's a cooperation with grace. <laughs> he does not say, here's where I've been in a trap before. I sometimes want to wait for God just to zap my desires. I want to wake up one day and say it's all gone. No, no, no. What God wants to do is he wants to give you the grace, his very spirit living in you, and then he wants you by that same spirit to say yes to him so that your life in that little place that you said yes becomes a stage to display your love for him to the world. That people would say he's not a robot who was forced, but by the love of God, he's been compelled to cut this thing out of his life because God is the treasure for him. God says there's a part that God does and there's a part that we do. He's empowering, but it's a part that we do and we cannot reverse the two. Joel 2, in the light of what was happening in the nation, God says, rend your hearts. He doesn't say, I'm going to do it. He says, you rend your heart. You, you, you get before me. You, you, you yield to my voice. Do you guys hear me on this? I'm, I, it's, I'm speaking, it's, it's for me, but for us, I feel God is calling all of us to say, it's now is the time. Let us cleanse ourselves. Why? Because of the promises we've received. Hear me, what Paul is, this is so important. The key here is that the call of separation, holiness, consecration, put whatever word you want there. They're distinct, but they're, they're similar. It's, it's unto greater experience of the promises of being his temple now. Every call to come away or out of something, sin, every call to come away from sin is really a call to draw nearer to God. When we see holiness, consecration, purity as an end of themselves, that's where it gets really distorted. Yes? We're not just, we're not just throwing things off for the sake of throwing things off and staying in a neutral state. The call to be a follower of Jesus is not a call to just barren renunciation. You follow me? When Jesus says, follow me, he says, pick up your cross, deny yourself. There's self-denial involved. Where it gets strange and weird is if we just stop with a life of self-denial. What is it on the other side of self-denial and picking up the cross? Follow me. It's an exchange to have the greatest joy and the greatest pleasure of the world. This is where life happens. This is what Paul is saying. Since you have these promises... Since this is potential, uh, greater encounters, Holy Spirit, greater life, greater impact, greater influence. Since this is within your reach, let's throw everything off to press on to that what God has given us. Amen? Break all agreements with the flesh. Separate from works of darkness. Cut off every addiction. Get rid of it. That's the Lord says, so that we could have all that he's created us to be. He says all or every, every defilement of body, spirit, no spiritual shortcuts, God wants to deal with everything. He then says flesh and spirit, it says here, or body and spirit, which means the seen and unseen, the external and internal, things of the natural, things of the supernatural, everything he says deal with. And the other side of that is greater encounter, greater glory. I want you to know holiness, holiness, a lot of times it becomes this negative word, right? We've talked about this. Typically, holiness gets reduced to an, this all-pervasive negative term that it's all hinging on what not to do. Don't touch, don't look, don't do this. The Christian walk 100% has healthy aversion in it. We stay away. There's no doubt about that. But my point before is that following Jesus is more than just a life of avoidance and abstinence. That's not where the glory is. 
you can try to do that all day long. If you want to find a power to overcome those things, it's not just learning to say no, but it's learning to say yes to him. That's where the life comes from. Once that starts happening, you will start finding a week, two weeks, a month, a year, and say, wow, I don't do those things I used to do anymore. Not because I'm white-knuckling it, but because I've tasted a superior pleasure. Yes? That's the, that's the call. Mike Bickle says this a lot. He says, um, holiness is not a call to miss out. You may miss out on certain activities, but, you don't re- but your heart never misses out because those activities in the end leave you more broken, depressed, and empty as ever before. Holiness is actually a call to maximum pleasure in God. It's saying, I want to set your heart free from everything that dulls your affection so that you can really enjoy God and all that he is. That's what Paul's saying here. Come out so that you can live in the fullness of who God has made you to be. Amen? And he says, in doing so, bringing holiness to completion. So what's the goal of grace? To bring holiness into completion, meaning every area of our life touched in the fear of God. (laughs) That's an entire sermon in itself. But listen, um, we did an entire sermon series, uh, I don't know how long ago, a couple years. We did several weeks on the fear of the Lord, and, uh, and we can't touch it thoroughly here. But what Paul is saying is the motivation here to live a life of throwing things off and fully pressing into the grace is motivated by the fear of the Lord. And it's interesting because scriptures talk about how God has delivered us from every fear, it says. David says that. Uh, We don't have the fear of Adam. We don't have the fear of punishment as a believer um, in terms of like end time judgment. But yet this fear of God remains. And I just want you to know that the fear of the Lord does not drive you further away from God. This, that's the fear of Adam that hid from God. The fear of the Lord, Jeremiah says, will actually bind your heart to his. Because the fear of God is not at odds with the love of God. Although distinct, they go hand in hand. And let me explain real quick. I've shared this before, but for those who haven't heard. When you fe- why do I fear, personally, why do I fear, and a parent can relate, something happening to my kids? Why do I fear when they go into high school making terrible de- choices that could have their life unravel? Why? Because I love them so much. Why does someone fear losing their job? Because they love security or they love their family and they want to provide. Why do, why do some people love or fear the rejection of man? Because they love the praise of man. And the point is that what you fear reveals your true treasures. The fear of the Lord is actually rooted in a heart that has found Christ as his supreme treasure. He's not afraid backing away. He's actually saying, you are so awesome. You're so amazing. You're so everything that I want that I, there's a holy sacred guarding on my life to never do something that would jeopardize that which you have given me. Paul says when revelations and we start having encounters with the fear of God over our house, that we begin to have a holy trembling, Paul says this will provide the motivation to throw off everything that hinders us and run fully into the grace of God and be all that he's made us. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand as I pray over us? I will open up ministry time. But as I said before, I, I, I want to just pray, and I want to be clear that I think altars are amazing, and I, I think there's so much that can happen, and if there's something in your heart that you want to receive prayer for or you just want to respond to God and no one pray for you, that's fine. I would invite you to stay and do that. But let's just know that today is bigger than a, a one-time altar response. That's what I mean when I feel like we're in a season, that God's really not wanting us to jump to the next subject and say, wow, that was, that was good, and, and we move on, but... 
God, we don't want to receive grace in vain. <laughs> we want to run in all that you've made us to be. We want to cherish the promises that we're your house. And we want to cleanse ourselves by making actual choices to remove these things from our life. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, let's not rush this for a moment. Just, just take a moment. Just quiet ourselves before the Lord. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.